that we live in a world of barriers. And this is really obvious from the earliest of ages, that I remember being a student walking into the elementary or middle school lunchroom and being certain there were some tables at which I could not sit, that the barriers were loud and clear. That The Atlantic recently ran an article about uh, explaining these barriers, why our, our schools are so clicky, why the lunchroom is so difficult, why we build these barriers, and here's how the article starts. If you remember high school as an occasionally awkward series of confrontations between tribes of similar grouping kids, this is a good sign that you went to high school. I can relate to that. Why do we do this to ourselves? It's awful. And it just gets worse with age, right? We bring this into our workplaces as well. The Career Builder just did a survey where it, it asked uh, questions about the workplace and clicks that often happen in the workplace. And of the participants, 21% said they watched a certain TV show or movie just so they'd be able to discuss it with coworkers the next day. 19% made fun of someone else or pretended not to like them. 17% pretended to like certain food and 9% took smoke breaks just to fit in with the office click. Right? And frankly, it's, it's worse than that. Right? We get home from work, we turn on our TV, and there are barriers all over our world. Socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, religious. We are experts at building barriers. Now, our world is just one giant high school lunchroom. And take our own Kansas City for a moment. When I first moved here, I heard something called Google Fiber was coming to Kansas City. And I didn't know what it was, but I wanted it, right? Who doesn't want fiber? And so as I've read more, I've gotten even more exciting. That for those of you, maybe already you have access to it. For others of you, it's headed this way, right? It's $300 for seven years of free internet. Internet speeds that no competitors can even come close to. I mean, it's an awesome thing. And yet, it's also become one more sign of just how divided our city is because there's a catch enough people have to sign up in each neighborhood in order for fiber to come your way and so take a look at this map of Kansas City <clears throat> that the green dots are places where Google Fiber is coming where it's already there it's about to happen and so if you live west of the red line Google Fiber is probably happening for you but if you live east there wasn't enough signups which means you aren't going to get Google Fiber and that red line is Troost Avenue a major economic, socioeconomic, and racial barrier that was created decades ago by the power brokers in our city. They wanted a barrier in our city and they succeeded. And decades later, despite many great leaders and the best of intentions by many fantastic people, that barrier still has not been brought down. That it's complicated, but Google's tr struggled to get enough signups east of truth because the $300 startup fee is, is much too much for many to pay out front. And so access to cheap, fast internet will not go east of truth like so many other things in our city. Why? In that case, because decades ago, somebody decided they wanted a line in the sand, a barrier between different parts of our cities. And barriers do not come down easily. Though we humans, we build barriers. That's what we're experts at. Whether it's the Lunch Avenue, whether it's Truth Avenue, whether it's the people in our life we're just convinced we, we can't or won't forgive, we're experts at building barriers. Which raises a question for us this morning. How do we stop? 
Right, and if you're, if you're John Lennon, that's why you would imagine, just, just love each other. Just forget all the differences. Just come together in love. And if it was that simple, we would have done that a long time ago. It's not that simple. That there are very real reasons why we build barriers between ourselves. Some of them being even, to some extent, good reasons. That some would say maybe religion's the answer. But even as a pastor, I've acknowledged that the religion is often one of the greatest barrier-building tools we have. It builds some of the most strong, tall, unassailable barriers we have. Religion is often a problem, not a solution to this. And yet, I do think Christianity has something incredibly unique to say here. Something unique to offer. A table. A meal. Bread and wine. And I know that sounds ridiculous, like a meal overcoming barriers, but this table, if we take it the way Christ meant for us to take it, has the power to break any barrier, has the power to give you a source of forgiveness and reconciliation. Nothing else can. That a table, it has no barriers, right? It's open to all. It's, 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 it's round. It's everyone together. A table has no barriers, and I hope you heard, as, as Paul, we read what Paul wrote to 1 Corinthians, or to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians there. Paul is angry. In fact, this is probably one of his angriest passages in all of the Bible. And Paul gets angry in moments. And Paul is angry because th- this church has turned this table into one more barrier. And Paul's saying that, that's what everyone else does. And this table is not supposed to be like that. And so he's, he's angry at a level we rarely see. Because they're building another barrier at this table, a table that's not meant to have any barriers. And so Paul responds, and we need to listen in. To hear why we as human beings are experts at building barriers, to hear of the great barrier Jesus has overcome for us, and finally, three, three, to hear his invitation to us back to the table. So let's start with one, why we humans are expert barrier builders. That's where Paul starts. I mean, he lays in, I want to read it again, just for us to hear the tension and conflict happening in this church. Here's what Paul says is going on. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Down to verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, what is going on here? Well, in this day, in this church, and, and probably most likely throughout the churches in the New Testament, that when the church got together to celebrate communion, they would eat a love feast or a, a, a broader meal around that. The Jude 12 refers to it as a love feast. And what happens is everyone probably brought their own meal and, and sometime in the midst of sharing all of that food together, they brought out the bread and the wine and they celebrated communion together. So it's like a church potluck and then in the middle everyone celebrated communion. But what's happening here is the rich would have had more food, better food to, to pick from, as well as their workday on Sunday would have been shorter so they could get to the meal faster. Whereas the poor classes would have been stuck at work a little longer. And so the rich have gotten to church, to the, the house first. They're eating, they've already dug in while the poor are still behind. And so by the time the poor get there, there's, there's little left to eat. And the room is, or the, the, the two groups are set off from one another. 
Because in that day, the rich and poor didn't eat together. So there would there'd be a dining room in the house. That's where the rich would eat. And then out in the outer court, that's where the poor would eat. Most likely that's what's happening here is the, the rich, they have their meal. The poor have they, their meal. The rich have their communion. The poor have their communion. And a barrier is built between the rich and poor in this church. The church in Corinth, the city, is a very diverse city, which means the poor and the rich were right by one another. And this is why Paul is so angry that this distinction between the two, these, these barriers built in society have now been brought into the church. And Paul's clear, listen, it'd be better if you just didn't even meet. Right? You're not worshiping Jesus. You're not having church. This isn't communion. It'd just be better if you weren't even meeting. And I'm sure they would have protested, right? They would have said, this is how society works. This is how all society works. The rich eat here, the poor eat there. That's how it works. And yet Paul says, very forcefully, that's not the way it works at this table. It's different in this place. But this table has no barriers. And when I first read this text, I sort of thought, man, this is, this is ridiculous. How in the world could you do this? This, this would seem to be obvious, right? They seem, this church just seems to really not have it together. But here's the scary thing. They're blind to what they're doing. It's accepted cultural norms. They don't think what they're doing is wrong. That no one wakes up one morning. I don't think anyone wakes up one morning and says, I want to separate myself from an entire class of people. Or I want to separate myself up, off into my own subgroup. We don't do that by, I think, by waking up in conscious choice. It just happens subtly and slowly till we've erected entire social systems where we're cut off from people who are different from us. And our barriers today may not be as obvious as they were in the Corinthian church, as obvious as they are when we read this text, but look into our hearts. Those barriers are still there today. Right? That we all, at least I do, have a tendency to come to church and say, okay, now that I'm here, I need to make my community, make my, my friendships. And that's a good thing, but there's also a subtle danger to that. that. Under the gates of choosing our friends, we begin to actually exclude people and reinforce Barriers, And before you know it, the people that we care about most at the church or the people that we, we spend the most time with at church are people who look like us, are the same age as us, have the same jobs as us, the same salary as us, go to the same school. It's subtle, it's slow, but we do the same thing. But when we come to this place, to this church, we're coming to his table. Right? And just like when I go over to someone else's house to eat, I don't get to say, hey, that person can't come. They, they, I don't want to eat with them, right? It's not my house. It's not my table. This is not our table. It's Christ's table. And he invites all to come. And yet we want to continue to build, at least I do, want to continue to put those barriers up. And so this morning, I want to ask us just a, just a question, which is, where are your barriers? Not do you have them, but Where? And so I'll ask them just some diagnostic questions. At least I was working with someone else who's preaching at our Leewood campus this, this morning. We were just were working through these questions, and we both felt terrible about ourselves afterwards. So I'd, we'd like to share that with you. Um, <laughs> so here are the barriers we construct. One question, who do you avoid? Who is it that you avoid? Right? Maybe it's a specific person you just don't enjoy very much, but God keeps putting them back in front of you. Or it could be a whole group of people. Maybe it's in your community group where everyone gets along, but there's the one couple or the one person that, that doesn't. They're just, they're just different. They're weird. They're hard to relate to. And so you find yourself wanting to get the whole group together except for them. Or maybe you avoid a whole class of people. 
that not one of us in this room is immune to either socioeconomic or racial prejudice. Or is it someone of a different age? Right, someone, they're just too old, they don't get it. Or someone who's just young, too young, you can't take seriously. Now who is it that you avoid? Or who is they to you? A different political party or different age, whatever it is, whoever they are, you and they don't mix. Or who is it that you judge? That you look at and you say, well, at least I'm not like that. At least I don't raise my kids like that. At least I don't do that at the workplace. Now, who is it that you judge? Or whose opinion do you take most seriously? Right? Are they the same age as you? Same, same social status as you? Same education background as you? Whose opinions do you take most seriously? Now, I ask those questions of myself, and I'm convicted because I begin to see the ways subtly and slowly, often non-intentionally, I begin to put up barriers around myself. And everyone around me begins to look like me, think the same things I think, and do the same things I do. That we all have our barriers. We need to locate them, know where they are, so that we can begin to move past them. That we, as human beings, we are expert barrier builders. But our story as Christians is that Christ has overcome the greatest barrier that there is. And Paul reminds us next, he, when he moves to, the, the, to talking to the Corinthians of the table, of the night Jesus was betrayed. Um, maybe, maybe you've, as you've thought about communion, you've wondered, what is this thing Christians do? It's really, or maybe you're a Christian, you think, what do we do that for? Right? Bread and grape juice, what and what, why? It's just weird. And yeah, communion was, was an incredibly important night. And, and so Paul takes these Corinthians back to that night Jesus first gave this meal to us. That night was the night of Passover, which was an incredibly important night to the Jewish people. Israel had been enslaved by Egypt for for some 400 years, and Egypt was your typical slave master. They did not want Israel to go. And even, even though God came and said, Egypt, I'm taking Israel whether you like it or not. They would not let Israel go. So God sends the plagues, right? The, the, ten, the ten plagues. He sends frogs, darkness, over the land. He turns the Nile River into blood so that Egypt doesn't have a water supply. He does all these things, but Egypt, like any slave master, will not let Israel go. And so God finally says, all right, the last thing, and this, this is going to work now. And he goes, and he says, this is the last thing I'm going to do. I'm going to, to take every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And that's how I'm going to free Israel from their slavery. What's interesting there is God doesn't say, Hey, Israel, I'm going to take all of Egypt's firstborns. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm taking everyone's firstborn. And there's only one way out. But the one way out isn't, it's not your race. Right? It's not Israel, you get, you get the escape clause. You'll be fine. You'll, you'll be good. Don't worry. It's not, your race doesn't help you. It's not your, your, whether you're rich or poor. You couldn't have enough money to buy God off to get your firstborn back. It had nothing to do with, with your social Status. God didn't care. Whoever you were, if you had a firstborn, that firstborn was going to be taken. It wasn't if you were a good person. It didn't matter how moral you were or how much you lived up to God's law. God said, everyone's firstborn, is, I'm taking because that is how I'm pulling Israel out of slavery. But there's one condition in which your firstborn can live. One and only one. And God said, you, you take a lamb, you sacrifice it, and you smear its blood on the doorpost. And anyone who does that, your firstborn will live. Egypt, Israel, slave, free, rich, poor, doesn't matter. 
Whoever you are, you have to have the blood on the door. If you don't, your firstborn won't live. Right, that God looks at all of that world and, and to Egypt and Israel both and says, listen, it's, it's the lamb or it's your firstborn. And Jesus, on that night they're celebrating that event, some, some thousands of years later, he looks at the disciples and he says, I am that lamb. I'm the lamb. And if you have me, you'll escape judgment. Right, it's me or it's you and I, it, it's going to be me. And so he looks at his disciples and he says, this, this bread, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup of wine and he says, this is my, blo- my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Take this, drink this in remembrance of me. And that's our only way out. The, passif- the Passover flattens all distinctions and levels all barriers. That we do not come to this table because of what we have in us, because what what our status is, because of how good we are. We only come to this table because if you come to this table, you acknowledge it was Jesus or it was me and and I want it to be him. And so so in in two ways, Paul says communion, it's a meal of, of remembering. Right, and remembering is more than just recalling. Right, if my mom calls me later this week and says, hey, you forgot Mother's Day this week. And I say, no, I remembered. I just didn't do anything. Right, that's not going to go over very well. Right, remembering is more than just recalling. It's, it's an action. It's responding. It's active. That, that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just to take it as an act, as an empty physical act, but we're to take it physically, psychologically, spiritually, fully engaged, remembering what Christ has done for us. And so if we come and we take it and we're angry or we're bitter or we're mad against someone else in the body of Christ or we're drawing barriers or distinctions between someone else in the body of Christ, when we come to this meal, we're coming not remembering, which is what the Corinthians were doing here. The communion, it's a call for us both to remember what happened and what's coming. Right, what happened and what's coming. And what happened was, was Jesus had to die for you and me. Right, the communion line, it's, it's the spiritual bankruptcy line. Right, if you get in line to come and take communion, you're declaring bankruptcy. You don't have what it takes. It has to be his blood that you can't earn your way to this table. That we remember that Jesus had to die for us. He overcame the great barrier between us and God. That without Christ's sacrifice, we could not come to this table. But we don't just remember Jesus had to die for us. We also remember he was, he was glad to do it, right? It was him that stood at that table before the disciples and said, it's you or me and it's going to be me. I go gladly. I go willingly. Come, receive this meal. Receive this table as a gift from me to you. That we remember Jesus both had to die for us to overcome that barrier to God as well as he did it willingly, gladly, that we could come and share in his feast. So we remember what's coming, but we also remember, or we remember what happens, but we also remember what's coming. And my guess is verse 30 probably troubled you. At least it should have troubled you a little bit. Right, when Paul says, you know, you're coming, you're, you're keeping these barriers at this table, and that's why, why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. What, what in the world? It's troubling, right? It's supposed to be. Because at the end of the day, the trajectory of a life that insists on barriers leads to death. And we all feel that, right? That's why we look at our world, we look at the lunchroom, we look at Truist Avenue, we look at the barriers that this world has built and we just hate them, we want them to come down and yet the only way they're going to come down is if we come to this table or God judges us. They're not coming down any other way. 
That we humans are expert barrier builders and we will not let go of them. And Christ, through the Lord's Supper, says, come and let go. Come and receive this meal. And so we don't just remember, though, the judgment, the trajectory of a life that insists on barriers that will lead to death. We also come to remind ourselves that we eat this meal without, our, without the most important guest. And there will be a day when we, eat, we will eat this meal with him. Now, I took communion for a long time before I caught the end of both Matthew's account of this Lord's Supper as well as Paul's. When Paul says, verse 26, For as often as you eat and drink this bread and cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, you and I, we eat this meal week after week after week, knowing someday we won't eat it with Jesus. Then Matthew 26, Jesus says, I won't eat of this meal again until I eat it with you in my Father's kingdom. That we come, we receive this meal, knowing there's a day we'll gather around this table and he'll be with us physically in the body. But we remember what's coming. The great feast in Revelation 4 and 5, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where God comes, Jesus comes, and we eat and we feast with him. All because Jesus overcame the great barrier that you and I face. And if that's who we are as a people, if, if as Christians we are, we are people who have had the greatest barrier in our lives broken, it means we should be a people that seek to cross those barriers. And so I've already asked this morning, where is your barriers? Where are they? Locate them. The second question this morning for you is, what barrier do you need to cross? Not barriers, right? We only have so much time. And, and we could go into all kinds of complex social problems here. And, and we won't. My question would be, what barrier do you need to cross? Maybe you already know what it is. Maybe God's already put it there in front of you time after time. And it's just time to walk across that line. To cross that barrier. Maybe it's racial. Maybe it's socioeconomic. Maybe it's the person you haven't forgiven that you need to go and forgive. Whatever it is, take that barrier down and cross it. So that's what Christ has done for you through this table, through this meal. And yet, let's be honest, none of us can do that, right? I mean, none of us have the power. Just That's why the barrier is there, because it's easier. It's better. In some cases, it's, it's, it's healthier. And yet, finally, we, have, we cannot miss. The only way we'll have the strength to be a people that cross those barriers, if we understand and we have taken in that Jesus has invited us back to his table. Now, I don't know if you were like I was as a kid, but if I got mad enough as a kid, right, dinner table, we eating dinner together, I got up and stormed up to my room, right? I would leave the table and just embarrass myself, you know, I, th I thought I was making a stand, you know, and I thought I looked good. It was actually just embarrassing myself, but, but that's what I would do, right? You leave the table and you're angry, and that's the story of the Bible, is that God prepared this feast, prepared this garden for us, and we left. We said, no thanks, we want to do it our way. We'll go, we'll go have dinner by ourselves in our room. And we left the feast, left the table, because we build barriers. It's what we do. And we by ourselves should clearly see we do not have the resources to overcome this. We don't have the resources to break down the great political and social, socioeconomic, all the barriers we create. We do not have the power in and of ourselves to tear them down. But there's a reason you and I long for a world without barriers, without that pain, without that reality. Where our school lunchroom is a, a place of open invitation. Where Truist Avenue is just another street in Kansas City. Where people could do anything to us and we still welcome them back in. We forgive them no matter how great the pain they cause us is. And there are moments when the pain is great. That we should be its barrier-breaking people. And the only way we'll do that, the, our only hope, 
whether you're a Christian or not, is this table. And I know it sounds outrageous that a meal would break down barriers, but a table has no barriers. You can't stay mad or you can't keep a barrier with someone you eat with. That we need a deep resource of love and forgiveness and reconciliation and God's gift to us is this meal, this table. And Paul calls us to two things then, as we come, as we receive, two things that have the power to do that in our lives, to make us into people who stop building barriers and begin crossing them. First thing he says is is examine yourselves, right? Verse 28, let a person examine himself, herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does that mean? Examine yourself. I think the big question is to ask, why are you coming? Why are you coming to this meal? Right, and the, re- the answer really should be is, is to repent, to come saying, I don't have what it takes. This is the spiritual bankruptcy line. I've examined myself. I don't have what it takes, and, and I can come to the meal. The don't miss verse 31. This is important. Paul says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. His point is, if you look deep enough into your hearts, you would not be building barriers to other people. You would see they need barriers from you. You don't need barriers from them. You need them. They don't need you. I mean, that's Paul's point, is is if you judge yourselves rightly, you'd see your own brokenness. The fact that you're not better than them. You're not any better than those people that you're separating yourself off from. If you judge yourself, you wouldn't come to the table in an air of superiority. And when I was in high school, like most other kids, I I chased after popularity about as hard as, as you could chase. And in my freshman year, I started to get it. Started to get invited to more and more places that made me feel better and better about myself. But what it meant was the friends that I had been with most of my life, I had to stop hanging out with them. Right? So Friday night came, and whatever the better invitation was, that's what I would go and do. And I heard a lot of people in that process. And so in my sophomore year, God got a hold of my life in sort of a, a new and, and, and unique way. And I just began, all that popularity I was chasing and the things happening in those spaces, just I had no, no worth attached to it anymore. So I, I just didn't want to go. I didn't want to be a part of that anymore and so I started to go back to my old (laughs) friends I remember one of my good friends he's one of my closest friends to this day there was a moment when he just said you know you were you're really a jerk right like you know that you were you blew me off all the time it was really terrible (laughs) you were you're a terrible person basically and I was like yeah I I realized I acknowledge and he he he's a Christian and he said "I, I forgive you he invited me back to his table because he had this resource within Christianity to look at all of the ridiculous things. And I did a lot of terrible things. I'm not even telling you the half of it. And he welcomed me back in. And he examined his own self and I examined myself. And in that moment, right, I know that, that I should never have been building my, a barrier between me and him, right? He was a, 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 not a help to my popularity. So I built a barrier there. Actually, he's the one who needed a barrier from me. I'm the one who was going to cause him harm. I was the one who was hurting him. And so when we examine ourselves, when we come to this table, we realize I have no right to ever consider myself better than anyone. Which is a great heart to have to come to this table. It's the heart you have to have to come to this table. It's the bankruptcy line. You don't come here to collect your wealth. You come to be welcomed back to a table you left. So examine ourselves, one. But second, we have to discern the body. Right, that we don't just look inward, examine ourselves. We also, Paul says, he calls us to discern the body. That whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what does that mean to discern the body? 
Well, the body there, it's not, it's not the literal body and blood of Christ. It's the body of Christ, the church. And Paul's call there really is, is a call to practice unity, right? You're having two communions. Stop. Have one communion. Right? Go and find the person in the church with whom you have a disagreement with or there's a conflict there. Go and, and seek peace. Or at least make a commitment, a plan to do so. And even if you don't get it to it today, know that you're going to. And so this morning, that may even mean there's some of us, we don't take communion. And that's okay. Right? There's nothing magical about the bread and the blood, the wine. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing unique to it in, in and of itself. The, the uniqueness, the beauty of it is the body of Christ come together to eat together. And so sometimes the best thing we can do, right, is be honest with ourselves that we're not in the best place to take this meal. And so to take a break, to reflect, to pray, discern the body instead of taking the meal. This is hard to do, right, to be a church, to come together. I and mean, one of the great things about Shawnee, the things I love the most is, is this, we have a wide age demographic. That's awesome. I'm so encouraged by that. We live in an area that I hope over time will begin to reflect the socioeconomic and racial differences. That'll take time, but I, 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 we're a church committed to that. But that's hard work to do that, to come together, right, and not see our differences and divide and build barriers around those things. It's hard to build a place where truly a table where anyone's welcome, no matter who they are or what they've done. I know I don't have that in me. And I'm guessing you don't either. That's why we need this table. It's our training wheels of love and forgiveness. Right? Whenever I would excuse my, myself from the table as a kid, my dad would always come up to my room and just say, what are you doing? Come back. And he'd, be, he'd always restore me back to the table. And that's what Christ has done through his cross. He's looked at us and said, why'd you leave? Are you, are you enjoying the meal better by yourself? Right, come back to my table. And this table then becomes our training wheels for reconciliation, forgiveness, for love. Now, one of my favorite Christian authors, James Smith, he, he puts it like this, the, talking of communion. The habits and practices of examination and reconciliation that are a part of the Eucharist are like training wheels meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. Right, I love that image. This meal, in this meal, we're all on training wheels. Right, that I remember the first time I rode a bike and I was convinced I would never be able to ride just on two wheels. That would never happen. It would be impossible. But then one day, it happened. And I rode and it was without training wheels. And yet today, right, none of us, we can't just love. We can't just forgive. We can't just reconcile. We need help. And so we come to this meal on training wheels. And as we come, we ask the question, what would it look like in my life if I forgave anyone like Christ forgave me? What would it look like if my... My life had no barriers. What would it look like if I truly loved everyone irrespective of how different they were from me? What would all of that look like? And our answer is this table. That in this table we're reminded there is someone who loved and forgave literally anyone of anything. There is someone who even when we excused ourselves from the table spared no expense, even his own life, to bring us back that when we come to this table, we remember we have been forgiven and reconciled to a God we left. That a table has no barriers. And a table is what Jesus has invited you and me, all of us, to. Let's pray.